welcome to the View from the Lab podcast. I'm your host, Andy Woods. In this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by a titan of the science education world, the widely respected Professor Michael Rice. Michael is the current president of the Association for Science Education in the UK, in addition to his role at the University College of London's Institute of Education. His whole career has been deeply embedded in the science world, from starting off as a teacher in Cambridgeshire to becoming a well-respected voice in science education and particularly in the field of bioethics. He has seen many approaches to educating our young people in science across the years and shares his erudite views on what has gone well or not so well during that time. We delve into his thoughts on integrating the three main sciences, as well as taking a side road to discuss the benefits of psychodynamic counselling. Towards the end of the episode, we also have an opportunity to discuss the friction we sometimes see between science and religion. There's so much to discover in this enlightening episode, so without further ado, let's hear Michael's view from the lab. Hello there, and welcome to the View from the Lab podcast, Michael. It's great that you can join me today. Very good to be here for me too. Thank you. Now, there's lots of questions I'd like to ask you. You are kind of um, a bit of a legend in the world of science education and there's lots of things we could talk about because you've contributed so much to this particular area of educational life. But um, I always like to start off looking back uh, into people's kind of personal history, their kind of love of science when they were a young person. So I would like to start, if you can, have you got any reflections on your thoughts on learning science in your particular school experience um, and uh, whether you had a positive or negative experience about science when you were, you were a younger man. Well, thanks for the generous introduction. <laughs> um, I was at school at the time when you didn't really do science in primary school. I remember right towards uh, the end, there was a nice woman whom I didn't know, she wasn't our usual teacher, who came in and did what I suppose now we'd call one or two demonstrations. Uh, particularly chemistry related with hindsight she was rather good but you know it wasn't a school lab or anything like that secondary school I was incredibly fortunate it was an all-boys school so rather oddly we didn't do any biology okay. uh, uh, and I have one O-level in science which is physics with chemistry which was enough your level but my physics teacher was frankly superb. A man, I can still remember his name, Colin Harris. He taught me everything to O-level, and then I did A-level physics as well as chemistry and double maths. And, you know, most of us just got top grades, and he was superb. And what was it about his approach you felt was particularly engaging for you? Well, first of all, he was utterly, completely rock solid in terms of his knowledge of the discipline. Okay. Secondly, the school at A-level was trialing Nuffield physics. And he was quite open with us. So this was a new, I suppose we now say course or specification in those days, they're just called syllabuses. Um, and so some of the practicals, you know, they weren't things he'd done year after year. So in one sense, one or two of them didn't work, but he was open about it. And the other really good thing is he really believes in discussion, which of course now I know the literature is a crucial part of learning, but it wasn't typical at the time. But if the discussion veered too irrelevantly, he would allow it for two or three minutes and then we'd get back. And that was just really good, get back to the core subject of the lesson. And do you remember, I mean, these days with uh, school league tables, et cetera, and the constant pressure on um, teachers and departments to, to, to hit certain metrics, did you feel that you were in any way um, 
part of that system? Was it very much, did they even talk about the exams much or was it more of a just a discovery kind of a learning approach and it wasn't just, you know, when are we going to do this? When are we going to do practice exam questions, all the rest of it? How was that approached? I know there is a danger on people looking back on their school days that they either seem wonderful or they seem horrible. <laughs> and I do believe that I'm more in the, a lot of it was pretty wonderful. But in terms of your particular question, it's extraordinary with hindsight how minimal the emphasis was on examination success. I remember in the pure mathematics A-level, the first time I saw an actual real A-level mathematics question was in the mock, which must have been in roughly, you know, February, March of the upper sixth. And I was just incredulous at how easy most of the paper was because we'd had a teacher who simply stretched us, always pushing a bit further. So it does seem like halcyon days, if I'm honest. And I was talking, I was talking at the weekend to a woman who's that's right, on Friday, it was on Friday, whose daughter had failed to get into, I think it was Nottingham University, having got grades A, A, B. I mean, you know, in my day, that would have walked you into Oxford or Cambridge or Imperial. It's changed a lot in terms of, uh, I guess, well, not grade inflation, I don't you call it grade inflation, but obviously the, the competition to get into those, those universities seems, seems to be heightened. And you went on to... You chose to do natural sciences. Um, and what was the impetus b- 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 for that kind of choice? Because um, was there a reason? It was just like, oh, you love science. I'm going to do this one because it seems the most open to kind of further study. Was there any thoughts beforehand or was it something that was suggested to you at school to say, you're, you're you know, pretty good at your science, Michael? That would be a great fit for you. It wasn't the school suggesting it. I can remember that. I've, I've thought over the years about why, you know, I ended up where I did, which was natural sciences at Cambridge. As an impressionable A-level student, I saw Maggie Smith in the prime of Miss Jean Brodie and announced I wanted to go to Edinburgh University. But for some strange reason, my parents thought that admiring an actress wasn't a sufficient reason to choose one's university. Um, My parents, by absolute coincidence, lived only six miles from Cambridge. So there was an element of it was terribly convenient. And of course, it was known to be very good. What I don't now know is whether at some level I realised I wasn't actually a physicist, because although I went up ostensibly intending to study physics, within about two weeks I'd shifted and was doing more of the biology courses, because the wonderful thing about natural sciences is you could just choose what you wanted in the first year. You didn't even have to get permission from you know, a tutor or a lecturer. You just went along to what you wanted. And I was very clear within genuinely about three weeks, a week after having begun the shift, that I was going to be a biologist. And therefore, I'm so lucky because if I'd gone somewhere else, I suspect I'd have ended up with a mediocre-ish degree in physics, quite enjoyed it, whereas I fell in love with with biology. You must have been one of those rare people in biology sometimes that is obviously you're an excellent mathematician, but also yeah. with the interest in biology. So that must have been, I assume, a massive strength in that area of biology, would you say? It was when I came to do my PhD, because, uh, as you will know, if you're going to do a doctorate, you've got to come up with something novel. And I started on the topic of animal behavior of red deer on Scottish islands, and I loved it. And I remember when Jenny, to whom I'm now married, Uh, came up 
for 10 days to be our official cook during the autumn rut, it was obvious to me within two days that she was better at noticing behavior than I was. So I thought I'd better play to my strengths. And by biologist standards, I am good at maths, not by physicist or chemist standards. So basically my biology was in, my, my doctorate was in applied mathematics. And so you obviously had quite an quite a, you know, extensive academic route and um, you did also become a secondary school teacher um, early on in your career. Can you remember why you made that decision or was it just a kind of stopgap before you, you wanted to try something and then, then look at something else? How did that portion of your life play out? What kind of decisions were you making at the time? I can remember in huge detail. I'd finished the PhD as Jenny had finished her PhD. We got married two weeks after handing in our theses. Uh, I'd got a postdoc, thankfully lined up again in Cambridge. Uh, and then Jenny started to get a series of postdocs uh, either in Cambridge or close to Cambridge. And then um, I decided to do the PGCE as a backup in case I couldn't get another postdoc. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I always remember this very significant week in March where the only job teaching biology in a state school in Cambridge, uh, I'd applied and they'd called me for interview, I think on a Friday. And I had an interview for another postdoc at Newcastle or somewhere on the Tuesday. And I had an interview in Oxford on the Thursday. And I suddenly realized for a whole range of reasons, I wanted the teaching job. I'd really enjoyed the PGCE. I just thought it'd be nice we could get a mortgage and a house. Yeah. And so I had five years teaching at Hills Road Sixth Form College in Cambridge when I learned more than in any other five-year professional period of my life. Uh, I see. So, um, yes, it kind of um, when you start te- teaching something, you always obviously learn, learn a lot more than the, the students often when you're when you're going through that. Yeah. And um, obviously you decided to move away and go, kind of go back to an academic um, lifestyle. Was that, again, changing circumstances or an opportunity you couldn't turn down that, that was um, somewhere you really wanted to go? What was the what was the next turn in the road for you there? You may detect a certain element of a lack of career planning. What <laughs> happened was. I was invited back to the University of Cambridge for a one-year secondment because one of the science team, science education team, in fact, the physicist, a remarkable woman called Brenda Jennison, whom some people of my uh, cohort who did physics around the country as teachers will remember, Brenda uh, had a year-long study leave. So I came back. Uh, oh, well, wrong. It wasn't Brenda. It doesn't really matter the details. But I came back on a secondment for a year. That's the point. And hugely enjoyed that. And then I'd, I'd, I'd offered to go back to Hills Road. But the short version is Cambridge also wanted me to stay on, admittedly, only on a series of short term contracts. And I decided to stay on these short term contracts. So I then had a total of six years on contracts that ranged in length from four months to 12 months in the Department of Education at Cambridge, running secondary PGCE. Almost anything that was going, I mean, as well as looking after Brenda's physics students for a year, I looked after the geographers for a term, mainly though I was doing either biology or combined science. And did you, um, how did you reflect on that time? I mean, I guess... That obviously PGC courses, of course, have changed over the years. When I did mine, what, 20 odd years ago, 
um, you had university tutors going into schools and watching you fix things just once at the end of the term and making it some kind of judgment. Um, how was it organised? Did they even did you even go into school? I suppose you did go into schools, or did you just have a conversation with the mentor? Did you even watch uh, the 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 the, uh, the teachers teach children? How was it? Can you remember much about how it was organised when you when you were running it? I can, and it was much more hands off then, as you imply, than it is now. First of all, in those days, students spent sixty days only in the schools, 120 in the universities. That's now switched round. Secondly, if the student was doing well, I might only go in once, exactly as you say. Wouldn't quite be the end of term, but it'd be halfway through. And um, that was it. The other ones you went in, obviously, more often, uh, the extreme case was one lovely chap. I remember going in a total of seven times. Well, that included an extra placement and all the rest of it. But it was much lighter than now. The, so, so it's better now in terms of um, when it works well, it's better in terms of a, a, a more major role, role for the school. But I have to say, in those days, it often did work well. The heads of department we worked with, I was in Cambridgeshire, were just phenomenal. The turnover of teachers was much lower, so you knew the school superbly, and that just made it so much easier. Placements were just done by you gave people a ring, you know, Mm. a couple of weeks before the student started. Eight out of ten of them just said yes on the phone. The other two said, oh, so sorry, two new staff this term. This isn't a good term. You said, no problem. And you got in touch the next year and there were enough schools that you could always find them. So it was a lot easier. Mm. And I, I assume that, it, you know, the the recruitment and retention problem is was not such a issue when you were when you were doing that. It wasn't such a, a dearth, you know, lack of teachers, sorry. Exactly. So when I started teaching at Hillsford Sixth Form College, uh, two of the people in the department, they were both now in what we would now call the senior management team, had just been there for 30 years. They were basically deputy heads. And I remember when, by coincidence, that head teacher left, the head teacher of the whole school, and a new one came after a couple of years or so, the most junior male teacher gave a, me, I was still the most junior male teacher, gave a bunch of roses to his wife who's leaving and the more interesting thing is the most junior female teacher presented the head with the nice painting we bought and she'd been at the school five years Mm. turnover was remarkably low yeah some turnover can be quite healthy you know regenerates etc etc but as you and i know in many schools now especially in the big urban conurbations it is it is tough for everybody because of the rate of turnover mm. i was reading in your 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 bio that you were at the beginning of um so around about the 2000s pe- period you were a reader in education and bioethics and um apologies for my ignorance but i don't know a lot about bioethics could you explain please to a layman such as myself what what are the core ideas of bioethics and what types of things do you write about when you're writing about that, that, that topic? Could you kind of um, elucidate a bit on that for us if you can? What it was, was that because I'm a biologist, basically, a lovely chap who was a moral philosopher, so wrote about ethics, had been commissioned in the early 90s to write a report for ICI about the ethics of crop biotechnology because people were just beginning to get worried about genetically engineered crops. He loved it. 
and he decided he wanted to write a book. He knew he had to find a biologist, and we wrote a book on the science and ethics of genetic engineering. So bioethics is simply about anything to do with moral philosophy, ethics, to do with biology. It includes medical ethics, and I do some work in you know end-of-life issues and um, uh, things like that reproductive technologies but 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 the the thing i'm better at because there are vast numbers of very good medical ethicists is i'm better at the um you know animal welfare issues should we have cloning xenotransplantation without getting into lecture about that those sort of issues and i've carried on doing that so i sit on the nuffield council on bioethics at the moment for example and kind of linked to that, I, I felt that um, you, you were also um, uh, were ordained in the Church of England in 1990, so some, some time ago now. And um, I'm often interested in talking to people about uh, this sometimes uh, juxtaposition between you know science and religion. Sometimes uh, is often talked about with you know Richard Dawkins being on one side of the spectrum. Um, uh, how do you how do you kind of view that? How do you think about kind of religion and specifically, obviously, Church of England Christianity and and science itself? Do you do you see it as a any kind of issue at all? Do you think they kind of they're quite a nice nice link together? Do you ever kind of consider that? Obviously, you've had experience of both, and you're an expert in both. So, how do you um, how do you link those ideas together? And are there any kind of um, problems with that with, with that relationship? If you like, I think I'm quite fortunate in one sense because the science bit of me was earlier than the religion bit. Okay. Uh, my fa- my mother was a quite strict atheist. My father was secular Jewish, had no interest in religion apart from some cultural aspects. Mm. And it wasn't until friends at university took me in a very conventional way to a mission. In other words, an outside speaker who comes in and talks about Christianity. And much to my friend's surprise, it just all seemed to make sense to me. And I made quite a sincere... Uh, commitment and had what can only be described as a conversion experience and that's been an important part of me ever since but 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 I can remember having a sort of 90 second conversation with myself about whether I was meant to read the early chapters of Genesis to think that uh, you know Eve was created um, out of Adam's rib and creation was right just thought that's just impossible to imagine so although I uh, was taken and had a great couple of years at a very evangelical quite charismatic church I never was one of these people who either um, had great difficulties putting science religion together or thought that you could only as it were read science through scripture to me they've always been it's difficult to use the exact word. They're, they're, they're integrated for me, but they're also complementary. And fortunately for me, there isn't, for me, a conflict, um, though I'm always very sympathetic to the many people, whether, as you say, on the one hand, the Richard Dawkins of this world, which I know each other rather well, or the other uh, pole, the, the, the large numbers of sometimes described as fundamentalist or literal Christians or Orthodox Jews or Muslims or Hindus. Mm, that's very interesting and it, and the other thing that I felt kind of linked quite uh, your biography um the bio you sent me was this um this practice of uh, I hope you pronounce this correctly psychodynamic counseling and I wondered how that kind of fits into your life quite in- interesting kind of um I don't want to say sideline but w- was that involved in your kind of more uh, clerical work or how, how does that fit in and what was your interest in that particular approach because I, I find that quite interesting 
So what happened was um, having fought off the idea of getting ordained for several years, because I thought the only people who got ordained were full-time vicars, and I didn't want to be a full-time vicar. All I wanted to be, well, at that stage, was a school teacher. Hmm. Um, because, but then what happened was when I was about 26 or 27 years old, I suddenly heard of something called the non-stipendary ministry, where you get ordained in the normal way, but you then work as a volunteer. Okay. And at the end of that ordination, I always remember one of our next door neighbours, who, if I'm honest, was not a man it was very easy to get on with. In the 10 years I knew him, he asked me a question which was something to do with, with meaning in life. And to be bluntly honest, I remember thinking I'd blown it. I just didn't quite follow what he was saying and I didn't have the skills to get him to rephrase it. And at that point, I thought, maybe, Michael, you ought to do some sort of counselling qualification. And I had friends in the village who trained as what's called psychodynamic counselling, which is a sort of more gentle form of being a psychotherapist. So I'm not trained to see people more than once a week. Um, I'm only trained with adults, not with children. I'm only trained with individuals, not with groups or families. But it became another important part of my life. And I spent 10 years working part-time professionally and only stopped when I moved to London because um, my job in 2001, because the hours would have just been chaotic because you're really supposed to see people at a fairly fixed time each day of the week, if possible. So is that something you think you might pick up again as you as, as things change in your, in your career? Or, or was that something you've left behind and you don't think you'll go back to that now? I don't think I'll ever go back to that formal seeing people who pay once a week, recruited through. I, you know, I worked as part of a sort of large group. But what I have found is that the training I got has been invaluable because it helps me know when I suddenly get really annoyed about certain things, half the time it's the things one should be getting annoyed of, any of us should. Hmm. But the other half of the time, of course, it's just sparked something in me. And for me, psychodynamic counselling and the whole psychoanalytical, psychotherapeutic world is very good at helping me to analyse myself. So to use modern jargon, without this being the purpose of it, it's definitely made me more resilient. Okay. So, um, and I was thinking... It must have an influence, I suppose. I'm sure you've managed people and teams in your time uh, with your various professional roles. Has it helped kind of you kind of deal with that yourself, obviously personally, but also do you think it's made you a little bit better with people as well because of that, that experience you've had? Yes, you're absolutely right. And we must be getting towards the end of the sort of personal bits about me, but almost the last qualification I've got is I do have an MBA which I may not have even ever told you about. Yes, I noticed that, yes. But the reason I mention it is because when I started managing groups for the first time, which was in my case research groups, sometimes it all went really well, but of course sometimes it doesn't. Hmm. And I didn't know why. And I found that the MBA, plus, as you said, the uh, psychodynamic counselling, helped me made sense more often of why sometimes things went really well and sometimes they didn't. 
Yes, yeah. It's always it's always tempting, isn't it, to also forget when things go well and analyse why they went well. We often go, brilliant, they went well, we don't think about it again. But obviously we, we dwell on things that didn't go, go quite so well, do we, uh, in, in our lives. So I'm saying to the audience, you see all these tips you get on Andy's podcast. I mean, <laughs> actually being serious, I think that's a really good point because I am the sort of person uh, and I don't know if I gather you are from what you've just said, who is much more likely to spend ages thinking about the relatively infrequent occasion when something goes utterly pear-shaped and less likely to think when actually things have gone quite well, which one has had to manage. So good point, if I may say so. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so let's work back to the science now. And I was thinking about, I, I, we, we, you've been involved with some discussions within, in a professional sense, um, over the last year or so and we've been talking about things like cur curriculum and, and things that I know you know a lot about I was thinking about uh, often when people have discussions again we kind of frame it as being the negative things that are happening uh, and I was thinking because you've had such a good experience of science curriculums and, and the way that the way they've changed over you know the past say 30 years or so do you think there's things at the moment that are, are more positive than they were 30 years ago or do you think that we've around the circle how do you view things as they currently are um are there any things that you think yeah i'm glad we do that now and we never used to do that um thinking back i suppose back to your own school career um i, I guess so any thoughts on that so as you say starting with the positives which is a good <laughs> idea um there are some very obvious things of course i mentioned my school didn't do biology which mm. seems a bit extraordinary and of course loads of all girls schools didn't always actually to be fair of course some old girls schools the old girls schools are rather good they usually did but as you and I know in mixed schools there was often the cultural assumption so at least the national curriculum while it hasn't had quite the positive effect we all hoped post 16 in terms of subject choice it has meant that you can't choose uh, whether to drop biology or chemistry or physics before the age 16 um Thinking, for example, of today's GCSE specifications compared to the old O-level syllabuses, they are far more detailed now. That is incredibly helpful when one is a new teacher. Mm. I can remember starting to teach, and I taught in the days initially, I taught GCSE as well, of course, but I taught initially when it was O-levels. I mean, they were about two pages long, the content. <laughs> so unless you had good colleagues who could explain what does it mean when it says plant transport? And then they say, oh, we'll only spend about half a lesson on sclerenchyma, but do do xylem really thoroughly, you know, those sort of things. Mm. Here, here's what I taught last year. If you didn't have colleagues like that, your students were hugely disadvantaged. So there's been quite a lot of improvements like that. There have been some disappointments there. I'm sure I mean, in terms of, um, I mean, the way we assess in science, um, I guess at the moment it seems to have, um, in a sense, gone back to well traditional terminal examinations. I suppose at, at the moment, the G, you know GCSE at A level. When you're thinking about you know the the, the, fu the future of science education, if you were you know the head of the DfE or whatever, what kind of things would you think would be a more, I suppose, not fairer but a more useful way of kind of understanding what pupils know and can do and is helpful for them to be have some maybe a bit of greater engagement in, in science as, as well, which are all quite hard things to to to, uh, to to kind of answer in one question. But any any thoughts about assessment kind of going forward? Any any kind of things that you are looking forward to perhaps in the next ten years maybe uh, for science? 
So let's just think about specifically summative assessment and let's just focus. Okay, let's have a look at that, yeah. As you say, GCSE and A-level. Now, I am very, very in favour of government uh, regulation and certain issues. For example, you, you've got to have a common maximum speed limit on roads and things like that, but then you can give more autonomy at local level, whether it's 20 or 30 or 40 and things like that. We These issues, like the one you raise about terminal versus continuous assessment, there isn't an internationally agreed answer. There is no perfect way forward. Mm. You know the reality of it because of your job. I know the academic literature of it because of my job. So what I would undoubtedly do, to be blunt, is if an organisation gets accredited as an awarding body, I would give them enormously more autonomy because when I taught there were much bigger differences between what the big, uh, sometimes we call them examination boards in those days, the syllabuses, the specs in today's language they offered. Now, that can have disadvantages because it's very difficult to ensure comparability of standards, the more variation you have, so I know that. But, 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 you've got huge enthusiasm about development of new specifications because they weren't just minor changes. They were some wonderfully big innovative curricula. And if I think of the work that the Nuffield uh, Curriculum Centre did, for example, Mm. it's more difficult now to get that. And I think today's specifications in England and also taken in some other countries are not as engaging for students as they could be, and I would support more autonomy to enable that to happen. I don't mind Ofqual having a sort of really high-level overarching role, but I'd be happy for those sorts of bodies to be much more hands-off at a distance, just like I would Ofsted in schools. Mm, Okay, so kind of that autonomy bringing forwards more creativity, you'd hope, with a bit more of that flexibility um, for different different types of approaches. Yeah, that's interesting. Interesting point. I was thinking about um, generally with um, the the common question we're often asking, and in my job is, you know, what is the what is the best way to approach um, giving young people a good scientific education, being being scientifically literate, but also uh, having something that is, in a sense, useful for later on in life, but also a bit of awe and wonder on the side um, to make, you know, from from the, from the kind of more sort of academic point of view. But also the other the other challenges, you know, how are you preparing a student who is going to become a doctor uh, or, or engineer? How do you prepare them also within within one way? So, is there a is there a golden ratio? Do you think in maybe the GCSE of, of what proportions you should be focused on uh, academic? or on wonder, or just understanding the world of world of science and applying it maybe to the everyday and when you're in Tesco's or whatever it might be. Um, any thoughts on, on the balance at the moment? So let me just go back a step and say that we are still incredibly fortunate in England, the United Kingdom, about the state of school science education. Um, even just the international rankings in PISA and TIMS, although certain newspapers seem to give the impression we do badly, we don't. You know, we always come in very roughly the top 15 of the of the countries that enter, which is about 60 or 70. And those countries are, roughly speaking, include the top 50 in the world. So we're somewhere, for what it's worth, if you want to rank, we're definitely in the top 20 uh, out of 200 countries in the world. That's not bad at all. Mm. We're pretty similar to most and one or two of the countries ranked above us, there are some very odd sampling issues to do with those countries indeed. So 
we may actually be doing even better than that. Now, we have a wonderful tradition in the UK of practical work in science. This is historical. Let me just compare with a country like Germany, which is a very, very impressive country for its science. There are no school lab technicians. So I've sat and observed lessons in Germany. If you're a very keen teacher, you can do practical work, but you have to prepare it in advance mm. and you have to clear it up afterwards. The bits of the students can't clear up. So they do vastly less practical work than we do. We have far more students per head of population going to read science-related subjects at university than is generally appreciated. I remember doing a project about 15 years ago with a US colleague, and she was incredulous because it's something like in England. It depends how you count it in architecture. It gets defined as a science, which is a bit odd. But it's about 40 to 45% of undergraduates are doing science or science-related subjects in this country. In the States, it's about 20%. Really? So there's a lot of good. Now, to get back to your very specific question about the classic balance between what do we do for the ones who are going to stop all sort of formal science at age 16 versus carry on, my honest answer, which links up with the previous one, is I don't have a magic answer. I was part of the group that got the original grant uh, from the Nuffield uh, Curriculum Centre that led to 20th century science, which was a real attempt to put more of the eggs in the first year in the basket of scientific literacy for all. And as often is the case with Pendula, perhaps swung a bit too far in that direction. But I don't think there's a single perfect answer. So I would much rather we had six or ish different specifications of GCSE by the three major awarding bodies mm. where they might play a bit more with this sort of thing. And I'm quite happy with the customers deciding and ending up following more what schools choose to adopt. Mm. Again, focusing on kind of autonomy and creativity and, 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 and selection, perhaps maybe for, um, yeah, for uh, individual science departments to decide what, 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 is, what is best. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I was thinking about... Um, kind of the uh the way things i mean they've, they've always well for many years obviously we've had the uh for want of a better word kind of the holy trinity of biology chemistry physics you know the the the, the not artificial because it is artificial to a certain extent um division there perhaps just for pragmatic reasons or, or, or teaching and then teachers i suppose um and often i read that the the way the world tends to be going things like um the, the recent piece report i read um looking into disciplinary kind of um subjects so do you think is a bit old hat having biology chemistry and physics bits and should we actually just somehow um bring them more more easily together um because that's the nature of um many scientific problems i mean covid is an obvious example it's about it's even wider things economics it's biology it's um, you know, it's, it's psychology, of course, which you, you could bring into the mix, which is, uh, you know, if you like, um, kind of moving towards the, the, the science area, definitely in quali qualifications. Any thoughts on that in terms of the way we split things? Are you, are you a fan of that or would you prefer more kind of thematic approaches? So some people listening may remember that when the national curriculum was introduced in 1989, it tried to get away from the division into biology, chemistry, physics. It had 17 separate attainment targets. The problem, as everybody acknowledges, was that therefore the assessment, the terminal assessment took up far too much time. So they got bundled. 
I'm at primary school a bit sorry that we've gone to quite such a conventional division between biology, chemistry and physics, because it is nearly always the same teacher who's teaching all of science. And that would allow the more innovative, the more confident, the ones who've got some science at degree level to be far more integrated without requiring it of everybody else. At secondary level, I know I was much better at teaching biology than I was at physics, and I know I was a lot better at teaching physics than I was chemistry. And I'm like most people, not many people are genuinely equally good at all three. Some are, I admire them. So I don't mind the division, um, especially at Key Stage 4 GCSE into the separate sciences. At key stage three, I'd leave it up to the schools to decide much more, which technically sort of is the case at the moment, though it's quite difficult to be truly interdisciplinary. What I would like is I'm quite happy about the idea, therefore, of you getting a separate grade in biology, chemistry, and physics. Okay. Um, if, you, if you do all three, that's no problem with GCSE. We could easily have a requirement for some sort of one interdisciplinary project you know, they did take up, just got, let's say, 10% of the marks. You can easily get those sort of things marked in the school and then moderated across schools. That is much less of a problem than when you allow school marking and moderation for a high proportion of the marks at GCSE. And that might at least give, 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 give youngsters of that age a bit more of a feel for how some of the sciences can work together. The extended project qualification, of course, which is a bit different, does a wonderful job at allowing interdisciplinarity. Mm, yes, yeah, I mean, lots of approaches. And yeah, it, as you say, it's difficult to, difficult to, to choose just one way of, you know, to success, because obviously, you know, schools are very different. Students are extremely different in terms of their, um, you know, their, 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 their position, their kind of outlook on science and how, how, how enthusiastic they are as well which is also obviously can drive you on to, to to more achievement when you when you hit some of the more tricky parts of science sometimes if you've got that interest to push you forward i was thinking about um your kind of body work your professional body of work and you've obviously written lots of papers you've written lots of books and i was just wondering so coming towards the end of our conversation now um i was interested to know what you felt you learned the most from so thinking about the publications you've written are there any that kind of stick out and think oh, that really made a benefit to you personally and kind of changed the way you thought perhaps um, about that area? So any thoughts on that? Yeah, that feels quite easy for me because okay. when I moved from this Celtic series of contracts in the University of Cambridge Department of Education to Homerton College in 1994, where I had perhaps the most enjoyable six years of my career, and was working in primary science, I knew then that was the time to start a longer period of research in science education. So I started what became a five-year longitudinal study of children's learning in science, and in one of the local um, comprehensives near where I was working, I was sitting in the back of the classroom on the day when the year sevens came in for their very first science lesson and I was sitting in the back of the classroom uh, five years later when as many of those pupils as possible had their very last GCSE lesson 
and I was with them when they got their GCSE grades and followed, you know, did loads of interviews as well. I think it was 568 lessons I watched and I don't know, must have been over 200 interviews of the students, their parents and teachers. And even though I'd taught quite a while, it was, and it was a good school. It was a good school. But, you know, it was really good because it, it helped me appreciate so much more the things that went well and why they went well in the science teaching in the department and occasionally when they didn't go so well. So that would be it. And that was a book I wrote up. I think it was called um, Understanding Science Lessons. It must be out of print by now. And then a colon, Five Years of Science Teaching, and was published by Open University Press. But I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with that book. You know. Okay, that's your kind of your, yeah. your highlight, and it was quite interesting. Were were the because these days uh, after five years, um, some some schools eighty percent of the teachers would have gone. So did the, did the teacher were the teachers still there after those five years? Can you remember? What a good point. You know, when I, I you know I can off the top of my head, it'll all be in the book. Mm. I can only remember one teacher who'd left in those five years in the science department because I remember driving to visit her to give her a copy of the book rather than just handing them out of the school you know what I mean yeah ha, good point so yeah things things have changed yeah so um my final question today was again about um I suppose other other sources um, that you would recommend so are there any I've, I've, I've said three books here but it doesn't have to be three it could be two it could be whatever you choose um any kind of books that you would definitely recommend um our science teacher audience to delve into perhaps when they get to the summer holidays whenever this, this comes out um there is um and um other than your own i'm sure they read, read your books as well but any, are there any other ones that you think you recommend to, to science teachers to 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 delve into if they've got the opportunity to on uh on their summer break perhaps when that comes around again yeah i must admit summer break i'm not so sure about that <laughs> Um, I, let me. I've got actually. It's, there's a book. Yeah, it's in the under the undone Christmas cards. This was a book. It may sound an odd answer, this, but I only read it a few months ago. I saw yeah. it reviewed. It's got wonderful reviews. It's called Mathematics for Human Flourishing. Okay. So it's not, in a sense, a book about science and science education. It's a book about school mathematics. Mathematics for Science Flourishing, with somebody I'd never heard of, the author. First name is Francis. It's a male, so it's F-R-A-N-C-I-S. And then the surname is S-U, Francis Sue. S-U, okay. Of course, what he does, for so many people, not me, you know, school maths was, um, even if they did well at it, it didn't really connect enough with their lives. And nobody would have thought about mathematics to help us flourish. And... He writes beautifully. Uh, and if I wasn't far too busy with those other things, including book contracts I'm behind with, I'd have fired off a proposal to write one about science for human flourishing. But it's a great book and it's paperback. Uh, and that actually made me think in a different way. Well, I shall definitely check that out myself and we'll put a link in the uh, the show notes um, to that book. That sounds like a, a thoroughly interesting interesting read. Um, is there anything else you'd like to uh, mention before we go off today in terms of just uh, hope for the future of science education or any reflections um, that you'd like to see over the next few years? Well, the only obvious thing I'd say is we're recording this at the very end of 2023 in the UK. Yeah. It is very likely uh, that in 2024 there will be a general election. If not, they'll have to be on right at the beginning of 2025, I think. So we're going to have either 
we're going to have a new government in a technical sense, whatever yes. party that belongs. And it's so long since the revision of the national curriculum in 2012-13 that there'll probably be some sort of revision. And that is a chance for us. And I know the professional organisations in science education, the ASE, Royal Society of Chemistry, Institute of Physics, Royal Society of Biology, have put in hundreds of hours already trying to get a curriculum that does what you were saying, Andy, you wanted to do to engage all of the cohort while also being a suitable basis for those who are going to go on to study science post-16. And we need, you know, we need teachers, we need people like me, uh, academics who work in science education, we need people in industry and awarding bodies, parents, everybody to get what is already quite good in the UK and England in particular in terms of the national curriculum to be really good because it should be possible to do that. Well, that is a nice positive note to end on it and uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed chatting to you today, Michael. So thank you very much uh, for coming on View from the Lab today. Thank you, Andy. Well, I hope you got a lot out of that episode. I really enjoyed talking to Professor Rice about his wide-ranging experience and reflections on the wonderful world of science education. I wholeheartedly recommend catching up with Michael's published work, which is widely available, especially his thoughts on bioethics. Do you know someone who is as knowledgeable as Professor Rice? If so, I'd love to hear from you. Please email your recommendations to andy.woods at pearson.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you on the next one.